Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Our interview today is with Dr. Morita Hani, who has taught philosophy at the ANU and Swinburne University of Technology, where she was the head chair of philosophy and is currently a honorary senior fellow in philosophy at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, University of Melbourne. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. Now, could you tell us, what is existentialism? Well, it's not a coherent school of thought or body of knowledge. Generally speaking, it's a concern with the human condition, with with what it means to be human. That's to say, sort of meaning of life issues. And it emphasises the idea that we as humans make ourselves. We create ourselves. It's the idea that morality is not a matter of conforming to externally imposed doctrines or commandments. And so too with meaning. It's we who create our values, our moral values and our meanings. Now, it came to prominence in the 1940s and 50s in Paris, where its leading figures, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, Maurice Meloponti and Albert Camus, would meet usually in Parisian cafes to talk about these issues. So there's a certain glamour associated with its heyday, but you'll find also that there are themes, existentialist themes, which permeate a great deal of literature, for example, in Dostoevsky, and also in Samuel Beckett, who was actually influenced by the existentialists. Uh, So is there one definition that's generally been agreed upon? Not really. There's there's disagreement about who to include, for a start, and how, how broad to spread the net. I like to include philosophers like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who are actually precursors, but not everyone agrees with that. And there's also at times disagreement about uh, which themes to emphasise. Generally speaking, existentialism consists of a a cluster of concerns or themes. Oh, so what are some of these concerns, themes? Well, to begin with, if we're taking... Sartre and de Beauvoir as our central characters. Mm-hmm. One important theme is what they call a distinction between facticity and transcendence. Facts or facticity, according to these writers, don't define us. The facts of my situation, for example, that I was born Caucasian, female, of certain parents in a certain socioeconomic group, these are facts that I, I can't change. They're called my facticity. But according to the existentialists, they don't define us. I define myself. And I do this with every choice I make. 
That's to say I transcend the facts of my situation. Now, another theme associated with that is the, the theme of becoming, the idea that as humans we are constantly becoming. I can only say I am, I can only be something at the moment of, of my death because only then have I stopped becoming. Our transcendence is also equated with the theme of freedom. Sartre actually talks about humans as having absolute freedom. What he means here by freedom is obviously not the absence of constraints, the facts of my situation, but my capacity to transcend those constraints, to, as it were, rise above them, adopt an attitude to the facts of my existence and to give a significance or meaning to them. So transcendence means freedom, absolute freedom. But if this sounds like a cause for celebration, and in one sense it is, mm -hmm. it's got a very dark side because linked with that freedom is the notion of commitment and responsibility. Sartre actually says man is condemned to freedom, meaning that this freedom is a burden. It carries with it absolute responsibility. So in all the choices I make, these are my choices. I can't blame God or history or a set of rules. This means that for the human individual engaged in becoming, in choosing, that there is a degree of angst, anxiety, bewilderment, dread. Uh, this emotional dimension is very important to uh, existentialism and, of course, is very well represented in uh, the literary works of existentialists. But the attempt, because the responsibility that I carry because of my freedom of choice, because of this, I attempt to deny the fact that I've got freedom. I attempt to blame sort of external factors like, well, God or history or my genetic uh, inheritance. I, I seek to abrogate responsibility and in doing this, I'm being inauthentic. I am actually committing bad faith, which for people like Sartre and de Beauvoir is, is the form of immorality. Avoidance of bad faith is, as it were, the only commandment of, of existentialism. So those are some of the, the main themes associated with the, the central figures of, of existentialism. Uh -huh. So what is the connection between existentialism and religion? That is a very interesting question. The existentialists include both atheists like Sartre and Beauvoir, but also theists like the French philosopher Gabriel Marcel, who I think was Catholic, and Karl Jaspers, who was also a theist. And this, this is why, this question is really why I see Kierkegaard's legacy as being very important. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, precursor to the existentialists, was a Christian, but he saw Christianity as not as conforming to a set of externally imposed rules, whether they be the commandments or codes of ethics, but rather as a matter of becoming. He said one, one cannot be a Christian, one must become Christian, meaning that religion is an aspect of subjectivity, not of objective knowledge or reason. He speaks about the leap of faith. Now, this, this idea of becoming has entered 
theological teachings, both in the Protestant and Catholic communities, and it's associated with the idea of process theology, a rejection of the idea that religion is based on a, an idea of an external god, old man in the sky, and they see religion and theism more as a process of individual becoming. There's another reason why I find your question about the connection between existentialism and religion very interesting, and that's because in European philosophical circles at the moment, there's a lot of thinking about what's called post-secularism, a rethinking of the values of secular society, which, although they were proclaimed as, you know, the, the ultimate values for humankind, there's now quite a, a growing discontent with secularism. And thinkers like Rosie Bradotti in Europe are writing about the post-human and post-secularism, which, in a form which really requires a return to transcendence. Not, not so much religion in the orthodox sense, but something closer to transcendence. So I think, I'm not saying that existentialism is a, a form of post-secularism, but I think the themes of existentialism are being picked up with some of this current thinking. Now, there, there does appear to be some confusion between existentialism and nihilism. Why do you think that some people are confused between these two? Uh, well, nihilism, as I understand it, means the eradication of values, the sweeping away of values, ethics, meanings, and often you know, sweeping away by destroying them and leaving nothing. It leaves a world devoid of meanings and values, and it's a notion which I see as, as coming from Nietzsche, the, the, the death of God that Nietzsche proclaimed, which for him was a metaphor for saying that, well, what, what the existentialists took up, the idea that there is nothing outside ourselves that we can rely on. Nietzsche himself wanted to uh, sweep away existing Judeo-Christian values, not with a view to leaving us with nothing, but with a view to revaluing values, rethinking morality and ethics, and doing so on the basis of the subjective rather than objective codes of morality. So really, this view of, if this is nihilism, then it is probably more accurately called an instrumental realism rather than a terminal one, as one writer has put it, because it's sweeping away existing values in order to start afresh. There's also a psychological dimension to nihilism, the, uh, the emptiness, the, the sense that nothing matters. And this too can be seen as a, a prelude to the creation of values. What, one person who's used this approach is the psychotherapist Viktor Frankl, who was writing in the, the 1960s and 70s. He was a survivor from, from one of the concentration camps and whilst there, he observed what he called an existential vacuum, a loss of meaning where sufferers, where, where those incarcerated were concerned. And he used this to develop a form of psychotherapy, which he called logotherapy, logo meaning meaning or significance. And the idea was that we must create our own values, that we can't look outside ourselves for them, but shall be 
the angst, the emptiness felt by people should be a prelude to the creation of values. And of course, as I've said, you know, Sartre himself talks about angst, which is another dimension to the nothing or the nihilism. But for the existentialists, I'd, I'd claim that, yes, there is nihilism, but it is prelude to something much more important and something much more positive by way of asserting the possibility of our transcendence. Now, Simone de Beauvoir uh, was an important existentialist. She managed to integrate existentialism with feminism. Could you tell us how she went about this? As Simone de Beauvoir says in her book, The, the Second Sex, she is adopting the perspective of existentialist ethics. She's talking about women, women's situation, and she's writing this in, I think, 1949. But very, it's a book very much about facticity and transcendence. She's arguing that the biological facts don't establish a fixed and inevitable destiny for women. They don't explain woman as other to man. And they don't condemn her to remain in this subordinate role. She's saying that woman is not a completed reality, but rather a becoming. So let's not reduce her to what she has been. It's her possibilities, such to say her future choices, that are important. In the course of developing this, I think she's much less black and white than Sartre. She talks a lot about ambiguity. Indeed, she's got a book of essays called The Ethics of Ambiguity. And I think... It seems to me that compared with Sartre, de Beauvoir is much more tuned into the tension between facticity and transcendence, especially in unravelling this idea of woman as other. One of Simone de Beauvoir's most famous quotes is, one is not born a woman, but rather becomes a woman. Could you explain about this quote? Right. Primarily, uh, when she uses that, um, that sentence, she's primarily talking about femininity, women becoming feminine in the stereotypical sense of being passive and docile and subservient, eager to please, etc. And she's saying that these are not givens, but in a sense learnt. The facts of being physically weaker than our male counterpart can't be denied, she says, these can only be regarded as weaknesses in the sense of inferior in the light of certain ends or goals or values. And it so happens that these are masculine ends to do with strength and fortitude, etc. So weakness is only seen as such. Physical weakness is only seen as weakness in the inferior sense in the light of the significance that we bestow upon them and this significance is not given by established norms. We're always, there's always the possibility of changing those norms. We're the ones who have the power to bestow significance on what we choose uh, and the me- on the meanings we give to things. So the, the immediate uh, meaning of that quotation, I think, has to do with the fact that as women uh, being other, we become women in the sense of feminine, the stereotypical sense. But knowing de Beauvoir's interest in ambiguity, I think we can read another thing, another meaning into that, namely that one is not born a woman, rather one becomes woman, meaning 
one becomes woman through future choices, so that one becomes woman as as a whole person, as a, a full human, a fully human being. So this holds out hope, and of course it was this hope that fed into, uh, or this optimism that fed into the uh, women's liberation movement at the time, the, the consciousness-raising movement that uh, developed during these years. Look, and, and finally, and most importantly, what are your own thoughts on existentialism? Ah, they keep changing. I have from time to time rejected it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I, I, look, I think it is still relevant as a philosophy of life. For example, the notion of becoming, the, the idea that the self is not completed, that we create ourselves, we create our own definitions. So this idea of creativity, that you our life is a, an act of creation. It's a work of art, as I think Nietzsche said. Your life is a work of art, constantly creating. I think there's also, I think also the notions of bad faith and authenticity are important, still important to me. And all of this is associated with the notion of transcendence. But what I do have problems with is the more Sartrean notion of freedom, this very stark notion of absolute freedom, I think the notion of freedom and free will has become enormously problematic, both with, with respect to, or both as a result of Freud and psychoanalysis, and of course feminists have taken this up in a big way, but also in the light of neuroscientific discoveries about the, uh, the workings of the brain, and also in relation to study of, of nature generally, where... Uh, I don't think, I certainly wouldn't subscribe to the implicit view of nature that comes out of the uh, Sartrean facticity transcendence model, according to which facts, uh, you know, the facts of nature, and that is static and given and deterministic. I'd, I'd have problems there. But what I do think is of major importance is that notion of transcendence, once we release it from the stark binary opposition of Sartre. The, the idea of transcendence is possibility. It, it means that imagination is important and certainly important when it comes to morality and ethics. Uh, imagination means the capacity to envisage what is not the case as well as what could be. So I, I think for me, an interesting line of further, further study, further reflection is emphasising the, the, the possibility aspects of this and, and the imaginative aspects of this notion of transcendence. Yeah, it's quite interesting how you said that your your views on existentialism have changed over a period of time because I was uh, reading something that Mary Midgley had written and she said that she didn't start writing until she was 50 because she didn't really know what she thought until then. And I think it's a big advantage too that you can actually be more educated on a certain topic and you can change your mind because if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you still have one? Precisely. That's <laughs> a, a very good point. And, and yes, I mean, the number of people in my age group, which is 70 plus, who are actually exploring new things in life, in other words, adopting an attitude to the facts okay, I might not be able to become the world's greatest violinist, but I can choose to buy a violin and take lessons 
and enjoy the learning. So a number of people really late, very late in life are discovering the, uh, the beauty of transcendence and, and, and the possibilities that it opens up. We're not talking about success or achievement, but we're talking again about the process of, of choosing and of bestowing significance on you know, the, the facts that are given. Mm, that's right, and and just doing something that you really enjoy, and it doesn't matter how good you are at it, you know, as long as you're getting pleasure from it and you enjoy it, I think that's the, the most important thing, and you're learning as well. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so thanks very much for coming on to Radical Philosophy today. Thank you, Beth, I've enjoyed the chat. And I've been speaking with Dr. Morita Hani who has taught philosophy at the ANU and Swinburne University of Technology, where she was the head chair of philosophy and is currently an honorary senior fellow in philosophy at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, University of Melbourne.